Hey, what's up, y'all? This is an unlocked episode of Champagne Sharks from when we first started. And just wanted to say some quick things. I messed up and kept calling Issa Rae Nigerian. She's actually half Senegalese and half ADOS. And I think I was confusing her story with her co-star, Yvonne Orji, who is Nigerian. And I got them confused at the time of this. So... Yeah, just ignore the part about Nigerian. Insert Senegalese in your head if you have to, but it's a small part of the episode. I just wanted to acknowledge that um, we know it's a mistake. And it was from a few years ago, so it's a little bit dated as far as the most recent pop culture and stuff, but the main ideas are still pretty good and forward-thinking, so enjoy. As you know, I'm quite keen on comic books, especially the ones about superheroes. I find the whole mythology surrounding superheroes fascinating. <laughs> Take my favorite superhero, Superman. Not a great comic book, not particularly well drawn. <sighs> but the mythology. And mythology is not only great, it's unique. How long does this shit take to go into effect? About two minutes. Just long enough for me to finish my point. Now, a staple of the superhero mythology is there's the superhero and there's the alter ego. Batman is actually Bruce Wayne. Spider-Man is actually Peter Parker. When that character wakes up in the morning, he's Peter Parker. He has to put on a costume to become Spider-Man. And it is in that characteristic Superman stands alone. Superman didn't become Superman. Superman was born Superman. When Superman wakes up in the morning, he's Superman. His alter ego is Clark Kent. His outfit with the big red S. That's the blanket he was wrapped in as a baby when the Kents found him. Those are his clothes. What Kent wears, the glasses, the business suit, that's the costume. That's the costume Superman wears to blend in with us. Clark Kent is how Superman views us. And what are the characteristics of Clark Kent? He's weak. He's unsure of himself. He's a coward. Clark Kent is Superman's critique on the whole human race. Hey, how's it going? This is episode 19 of Champagne Sharks. This is T. You can find me on Twitter at Ricky Rawls. And with me is Doc Ock. Hey, how's it going? So, uh, Aki, let me give you the platform to uh, let the people know anything you think is worth knowing about you. Um, well, I guess I'll give them my Twitter handle as well. Um, you can find me on Twitter at AkiJ83. That's O-C-K-Y-J-83. And T and I are buddies, and um, we have similar um, points of view <laughs> sometimes on social issues and media matters, so we're just teaming up to chat a little bit today 
Yeah, yeah. Aki is really worth following on um, Twitter because she's always usually handing somebody their ass. <laughs> like you, like um, you're not one to suffer fools lightly. So I always appreciate that about you. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm trying to break out of that a little bit. I'm trying to rein that in and learn when to disengage a bit sooner. So I'm a work in progress. God's not through with me yet. <laughs> um, yeah, so uh, Aki and I share a lot of uh, similar sensibilities. And one of the things that we share sensibilities about is how with a lot of this um, representation matters discourse where, you know, you have a lot of these, I don't really know what to call them. Like I've, we've been struggling this, with this for a while, like a blanket term for the type of uh, online black presence that I'm talking about. But I mean, I guess for the purpose of this specific conversation, we can call it um, the representation matters Twitter Right. I think that's about the most fair, best description we've come up with. It's, it's just representation matters, despite yeah. X, Y, and Z. And I'm sure we'll get into the X, Ys, and Zs in a minute. Yeah, yeah, ex- yeah, exactly, exactly. And Anki and I have been, t- I'll, I'll, say three, I'll say three works that I think uh, kind of exemplify like a lot of how they overstate the quality of anything, as long as it has representation, I would say it's Moonlight. Mm-hmm. Um, the movie Dope and Insecure. Like Insecure, we have been talking for a while, you and I, about just how extra average the show is. But when you read the reviews, both from like, you know, these white liberal critics and from uh, Representation Matters Twitter, you would just think this thing is so reinventing the wheel right right you think this is unchartered landscape must-see tv a revolution in television and when you see it it's 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 not bad i do want to start off by saying that i don't think it's a bad show it definitely feels like a youtube um what do you call the tv shows they'll do on youtube web series the web series yes it kind of feels like a web series well you know well you know that's how she got that's how she got her start Right, with Awkward Black Girl. Yeah, yeah. And it still feels that way to its own detriment, like, you know? Right. It didn't translate, I don't think, that well from being um, a web series to an HBO running TV show. And I've never seen Awkward Black Girl, so I have to be fair there. But I've heard from other people that that format and that version of it is actually a bit better than Insecure. I'll be honest with you. I tried Awkward Black Girl. I personally think that um, Insecure is actually better than Awkward Black Girl. Mm. Uh, I think Awkward Black Girl has that same type of over-exuberance about it that um, Insecure has. Because one thing with Awkward Black Girl, the, the level of craft is better on this one. Like, the acting, the dialogue. Like, Awkward Black Girl feels a little bit um, amateurish. But... The rawness of it, like that, you know, kind of amateurness has a certain mm-hmm. has a certain level of charm. So I think right. I think you can judge it on a lower standard. And I think one of the problems with insecure is because technically it feels so much more like a real TV show 
that web seriousness calls more attention to itself because you're like, okay, this looks like a real TV show, but it's still behaving like a web series. Exactly. And I'm not sure if it's, I think it's maybe a couple of factors, which is number one, it started from web series, then transitions. You still have some of those elements of it, whether that's charming to you or whether it's off-putting, it's there and that's its natural roots. Then there's also just the length of the show, 30 minutes with no commercials, but even with other, you know, regular TV programs that are 30 minutes long from, you know, opening credit to end with commercials inside, I still feel like they tell a more complete story in an episode than Insecure does. That whole first season of Insecure felt like the setup to a season. Like, you know, the season ended and I just felt like I had just gotten through what should have been like a pilot episode. Right. It didn't cover a lot of ground for it to be stretched out. I think how many, I don't know how many episodes there were in the first season, but for that to be a season, it just doesn't feel like it really took this, the characters from any real place to another place. It, it, it's, it's not a whole lot of movement. It's not a lot of character progression. And, and, and also, do you find, I, I don't find like, okay, I don't need characters to be likable, to enjoy something. Right. But, I mean, these characters, I don't even get why they hang out with each other. Right. Especially Issa and her, well, not only Issa and her friends, but also, what's her boyfriend's name? Lawrence, is it? Lawrence. Lawrence and his friends. They, they don't really seem to have that tight of a bond. I remember one scene from episode one when Issa was on like a girl's trip. I don't know, I guess they'd gone down to Palm Springs or something like that. And they were just ragging on each other in the pool, in the hot tub. It really laid their feelings out. Like, you're a hoe, you're a this, you're a that. And I'm like, damn, I could never imagine my friend saying that to me. And we're still friends at the end of this trip. Really weird. Like, I'm like, why are they even friends with each other? Like, there's that um, bigger black girl who's kind of sassy. And Mm -hmm. she just seems like she has a lot of issues. Then there's that bougie one. Who just seems to look down on everyone. And you know, like that show Girlfriends back in the day, I thought had a good balance of how you have friends and you can have conflicts with them, but they're still there for you at the end of the day. And you understand why you had them as friends in the first place. Like I thought Girlfriends had a really, I I think Girlfriends is a much more innovative and better show than uh, Insecure. Way better. And when I made the mistake, um, you saw it on Twitter when I was talking about the the complete absurdity of people feeling like Insecure was snubbed from the Emmys, I kind of made that same point. It's not even the same quality as those 1990s or early 2000s sitcoms that we have on just regular network television, like Girlfriends, like Martin, like Living Single. And of course, you know, because people want to argue, yep. they're like, oh, no, you can't compare it to that. And comedy has changed. Okay, let's say comedy has changed, but have you ever really laughed while watching Insecure? Insecure is the kind of thing where you tell somebody, wow, that was funny, more than you actually just spontaneously burst into laughter. I've never burst into laughter at anything that I've seen on that show. Right, it's more like dry humor, irony, wit, but not funny. Yeah. It's not comedy. It's not like, oh, that was funny to me. There are actual moments from girlfriends where I laughed my ass off. And the weird thing and so you can, The weird thing about the show ahead. is that it has actually mentioned girlfriends in it 
to his acting to his detriment because for the for the show to keep calling attention to the real life show girlfriends just makes me wish I was watching girlfriends instead. Mm-hmm. Like it's kind of evoking this comparison that it just really can't stack up again. Exactly. If I was them, I wouldn't even because in the first episode when I was watching that pilot, I'm like, um, what does this remind me of? Because this reminds me of something, but it's not as good as it. And then at the end, uh, they start singing the mm. girlfriend's theme song, and I'm like, that's what this reminds me of. And the the BS about those people telling you that comedy has changed, like, that's not true. And the reason I'll say that, or if it has changed, it hasn't changed for the better, because when Martin and Girlfriends comes on on repeat, they mm-hmm. age pretty well. Like, I'm shocked at how well they age. They do. They do. They really do. I mean, it's still fresh. You still kind of understand the dynamics of the friendships and the relationships that you're seeing. The humor is still there. And I even feel like, so like, you know how the star of Girlfriends was Tracy Ellis Ross, and now she's on Blackish, which is more current. It's a contemporary for Insecure. But even on that, it's still just not, Insecure doesn't meet the same quality level as blackish. Yeah. Like the comedic timing, the understanding of the different relationships and dynamics. And another thing that really irks me about Insecure is how they never really finish an interesting side story that they introduce. Like for instance, I like the office politics part yes. of it. How they'll talk about how uh, you know how Issa was uh, her, how that YouTube video of her doing that really crass um, open mic night rap came out. And all the kids were talking about it. And she was super scared of what, you know, the, the school administrators would think. Whatever happened with that? Like, the school administrators never really addressed it with her that I can remember. It's got a weird ADD to it. Like, you know, it can't stay focused on anything to the point of completion. It's, it's, I noticed that, too. Like, it has a lot of half-baked interesting concepts, and it gets kind of pleased with itself and just lets them fall to... Like, it's just so happy that it brought up something. That right. it just pats itself on the but back and just goes on. It doesn't do anything with it. And then with her friend Molly in her workplace, they introduced the new black girl who they hired on, who's like super spirited and loud and people call her ratchet and stuff like that, you know, just as a description. And they brought up this really interesting part where Molly being the only like black attorney in the um, office, they pulled her aside and kind of wanted her to go and talk to the new hire and kind of get her to rein it in. And they kind of jumped back to that, I think, in like either the last episode or next to last episode, where Molly declined doing it. She felt really uncomfortable doing it and told her superior, like, hey, I think it'd be better coming from you. But we never saw what happened with that. We just saw Molly passing by a boardroom, looking in, seeing the new hire, the new black girl, sitting down, looking very uncomfortable, clearly being told this. But there was no exposition. There was no, okay, so... What happened to her? What 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 are we supposed to take from yeah, this? Yeah, I I have this feeling about a lot of the, the new shows, not just the black ones, but okay, like one of the th- things I think is a problem with these new shows is I feel like those old shows like um Martin, Living Single, um Girlfriends, like Girlfriends was accused of being like just the black sex in the city, but if you actually watched it it wasn't Sex in the City in blackface. It had its own voice, its own personality, mm-hmm. its own identity, you know, and I think that was a very unfair characterization of it. And I feel like all those shows were like that. Like, they weren't trying to be the black version of a white show. 
and they weren't right. focused on appealing to a multiracial audience. Like those shows, I felt like were not trying to be voyeurism for white liberals or trying to appeal to bougie black people who work in media. Like those shows I felt were, were like for black people, you know, and they didn't like hold your hand and explain slang to you or explain blackness mm-hmm. or whatever. They just were. I and mean, when you were sitting on them, you felt like you were sitting in your living room with your friends. You know, you were in your dorm, you were in your, you, you like recognize, uh, the people. And I feel like these new shows just kind of, they want to appeal. They want to make sure that they're appealing to like the black bougie tastemakers online and appealing to the white critics. And I, and I think as a result, the voice gets a little conflicted and confused. They don't really know who they're for or what they want to say. Like they want to be everything to everybody at once. And, yeah, I get kind of yeah, it's yeah. not really working, and it's appealing to kind of the black bourgeoisie and white liberals by I feel exploiting the everyday round the way hood or ratchet or laid back black person. Like they do it to the point of being a caricature. Yes, yes. and and I think um, I don't know if you ever saw Yvette Carnell's video on it, but Yvette Carnell has had like multiple videos on uh, Issa Rae and and. I really like her take because I agree with it because she talks about how this is kind of like what Issa Rae thinks black Americans are like. You know, she's kind of created this caricature. Like I sent you this, um, we were talking about Kill Bill and the scene where Bill is talking to uh, Uma Thurman's uh, character and he's mm-hmm. telling her about a this story about Superman. I'm, I'm, I'm going to put the, the clip in this, but you know, he talks about how Superman, when he's Superman, that's who he really is. And Clark Kent is the disguise as opposed to most superheroes where, mm. you know, say like Peter Parker is the real person and Spider-Man's the disguise. Uh, like mm-hmm. Bill is talking to Uma Thurman's character and, and he's like, yeah, Superman is the real person. Clark Kent is a disguise. So if you look at how he acts as Clark Kent, he's nerdy, he's weak, he's unsure of himself, he's whatever. So like Clark Kent is Superman's commentary on how he sees humans. And I feel like right. a lot of um these Nigerian American um people because my family is from an uh, immigrant background, too. My family is uh, Haitian. So I kind of understand some of like how Nigerian-American dynamics work. I think what people like uh, Issa Rae and uh, the people from Dope are doing is, okay, I'm Nigerian. This is, to me, what black Americans look like. You know, mm-hmm. and what it is is... Yeah. The interesting thing about dope, I would say, if we're going to you know, kind of bring that into the conversation too, is that it kind of set the stage to exploit a stereotype when the actual mission statement of the plot is to break down that stereotype. Like if the ending of dope had that, you know, we actually get to hear what his um, admission essay to Harvard 
read. He was writing out his, his um, essay. And it was all about him kind of trying to get you to understand that just seeing him as a young black man who's from the inner city, raised by a single mom, that doesn't really capture who he really is. But in some ways, it's almost just kind of exploiting that stereotype. That was what the whole movie was about, was exploiting the, the, all the stereotypes see, of what see, black this is, is. This is the problem that I have, and it's kind of what um, I was trying to get at before, because I've, I've seen it from that angle. They want to transcend the stereotypes, but part of the problem is they kind of buy into them. And what I, what I mean by that is like, because um, Haitian people are very similar to Nigerian people in that extent. Like, they will be like, oh, you don't want to be classified as a nigger. But they really believe that the nigger stereotype is real. They just want you. So in a way, they're almost invested in it being real because their value comes from transcending it. Like, you know, if... So it's like, hey, there really are black people who are this stereotype, and there's a lot of them. But people like me don't fall into the stereotype, and that's why you, white person, should respect me. Because, yeah, there's... Because I'm the exceptional nigga. Yes, the exceptional nigga. Thank you. Yes, and that's kind of what was bugging me about dope. And I feel that same way about... um, I feel that permeates insecure in a way, like that ratchet pussy rap and all that stuff. I mean, there's a lot of rap out there that doesn't fall into that category. Like, why is it when you go into your rap character, I mean... She has to be so crass and vulgar and... It's it's interesting because Issa Rae herself, in terms of her background, you already mentioned she's Nigerian-American. And correct me if I'm wrong, but she comes from two parents who are first generation, or I guess they were the actual immigrants. She's a first generation Nigerian-American who was born here, right? Uh, But her parents were both, yeah, both her parents were professionals. She went to Stanford. She's had a very, you know, solid career. Yeah, and she's one of those people that you can tell was always on an Ivy track from the beginning. I I know these Nigerian parents are, yeah. Right, but then somehow the character that she wants to present to us is also a woman who's, you know, educated, maybe not the Ivy track star immigrant, you know, that Issa Rae is in real life, but she's a teacher, so she has some wits about herself, but the way she lets her hair down is rapping about broken pussy. Not saying those two people can't exist in the same space, but there could be something else there as well. Like you, the only way to be authentically black doesn't mean that it has to exude overt, crass sexuality in its basest form. I don't think that that's necessarily required. I feel like she's kind of telling on herself as far as, I think she, and I feel the same way with the guy who did dope, they're white identified to a point that they have trouble not looking as black at black people as others like i feel like she kind of otherizes black people the same way like uh middle class white liberals do and because if you notice like how white, how white liberals use black people like have you have we spoken about the whole maxine waters thing and the anti-maxine uh trend that's going on with these white liberals keep calling Maxine Waters, like anti-Maxine, and they're like, yeah, Maxine Waters was serving looks, and they're using all this, like, they're talking about her like she's, like, their spirit. Someone's sassy auntie. Yeah, yeah, but it's like, 
they'll never go to her to have an intellectual takedown of Trump. Like if they want to have an intellectual takedown of Trump, they'll talk to somebody white. But if they want, you know, something sassy or something, you know, where they can like have an opportunity to use some slang or something, then they bring her like, like she's just there to be a hood auntie. No, no matter what credentials this woman has or whatever, they don't really right. see her as something like if they want to explore their um like they see her and they're like, I wish I could do what she does. Like, you know, talk sassy or do or not even what and look over my glasses the way that she yeah, does. Yeah. And, you know, yeah. And maybe not even what she does, what they perceive she does. Like her little actions, like, you know, if a white person looks over the glasses, it's just a white person looking over the glasses, but because of their pre-existing stereotypes, everything she does is imbued with stereotypical black sass. You know, mm-hmm. so I feel like Issa has that same relationship to black people. Like black people are black American people and black American culture. It was what she does when she wants to explore her id, her uh, mm-hmm. ratchet side, you know. And it just seems weird to me that so many black people are buying into that. But I'm thinking maybe a lot of the black people who love this show have the same relationship to black people. Cause you look at a lot of their screen names. They're very weird screen names. Like, Oh, are you seeing when we, in, when we argue with them, you notice how quick they go to just talking ratchet for no reason. Right. Like it gets real. It goes from zero to a hundred real quick to where they're suddenly just being very crass, lots of vulgarity insults. It just goes into a nasty place immediately. Yeah. Almost to a point where it just doesn't even feel authentic. Yeah. And I think I can have a conversation with someone who's legit in the hood and it'd be more reasonable than what I'm getting from these people on, on Twitter. Yeah, exactly. Like somebody will be like a PhD or an activist or an Ivy League grad and you're talking to them and they're like, nigga, shut up, man. I'll cut your ass. Like, they'll be talking. It's like, what? Come on. You're an educated person. You're, this is cosplay. You're, you're, you're being a caricature right now. Like, I don't know if you think this is what being authentically black. Like, this is weird code switching that just doesn't seem authentic. That they do. Right. And code switching is a real thing. Like I'm a black professional. My friends are black professionals. We have a certain way that we keep it, you know, very straight and professional during the day. And we can chill out and really relax and let our hair down in the evening. But that doesn't require us to just be good. Yes. They they code switch into like a caricature of black people, and it's a similar caricature of black people to what a white a lot of white liberals have. And I don't think it's a coincidence that so many of these people grew up in a predominantly white environments. And when you dig into their, because a lot of them are freelance writers, when you dig into their writing clippings and history, inevitably they they almost always have something about how they discovered their blackness late or they're, um, you know, they had some kind of nigger wake up call where they realized that they weren't just honorary white people among their white friends, you know? Uh, so I feel like they kind of learned their blackness late. And as a result, they have a weird caricatured version of it. Like they're almost trying to overcompensate. They let me blackety black it up, even though what they're doing really isn't authentic to any of us who've been well aware of our blackness our whole lives. It's just weird. Yeah, exactly. And I also think because they've grown up so among these white liberals, they know what these people want to see or hear. You know, like they're kind of like packaging and pimping this blackness that is still kind of new to them. 
and selling it to these white liberals because those white liberals know even less. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I, I see it a lot, especially as insecure with the way they present their female characters, I guess, more than the men. But you've got Issa as the main character, Miss Broken Pussy Rap and just confused and all over place in her relationships. And then you've got Molly, the consummate professional at work, who's just, you know, banging and sexually exploring herself um, outside the workplace, which is fine. But then you get to the friends, like you said, the heavyset, black, sassy friend who's always crass, always vulgar, throwing herself at men who are clearly uninterested. She's just there to kind of fit that role, she, to kind of be able to do all the things that they don't want their real two main stars to do. Yes, exactly. And she is like, I feel like she's there. She serves the purpose that a sassy mammy character serves in a mm-hmm. white in a white movie. Absolutely. Yeah. And I feel like uh, it's just really weird. You know what else I think is very telling in that? How the kids from the inner city are portrayed. Like Issa, I mean, those kids just seem so just, I can't explain it. Something about the way those kids are characterized in her class is just really Mm -hmm. weird. And the way Issa Rae's character relates to them feels more like, um, a dangerous mind, white savior character. Yeah, more than some... like she's Michelle Pfeiffer from Dangerous yeah. Minds versus another black person who's from that neighborhood. Yeah, exactly. She didn't feel like, hey, you know, I'm, or not even if you're from that neighborhood, because like, you could be middle class or upper class black and deal with inner city black people, but still kind of feel like, you know, these are my brothers and sisters. These are my uh, brethren. Like, you know, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, yeah. So, she, yeah, she's, she. She otherizes those ki- those kids in a straight in a very uncomfortable way. Where I in think a strange she- way, where I don't think I don't think she knows what she's doing. Because then they'll include those scenes where she's supposed to be advocating against them being otherized in those teachers' meetings. Yes, and she's supposed to be standing against that. But then when you see her own interactions with the kids, it's not really any better than any of the white teachers. Exactly, or it's marginally better, but because. They're so much worse, and she's better than them. She thinks that she's better than she actually is. But it's like a narcissism of small differences. Mm -hmm. Relatively, yeah. And they've made the white teacher so clueless and out of touch that her just being slightly less cringy is supposed to be good when it really isn't. Exactly. She's nowhere near as different from them as she seems to believe she is. Right. Absolutely. I hadn't even thought about the children, but yeah, that's, that's the other aspect is how the kids are presented within the school. And I already mentioned how the new black hire in Molly's office, how she's just a huge walking character. And even the girl from the bank that Lawrence eventually, you know, starts a relationship with. I mean, that is just, I think she's really the one who's supposed to encompass intellectual ratchetry. Like everything she does is ratchet, loud, popping her, her, her tongue all the time, smacking her teeth, rolling her neck, have a bottle of hot sauce in her purse. But then every so often she'll say something that shows you she is very forward thinking. Like she'll say something about investing money. Yeah. Like out of nowhere. Yeah. So they're trying to take that person and say, okay, well, there's more to this person than meets the eye, but doing it in a very, I don't know how to say it. A very lazy way is what I would say. Um, do you remember what her point about investing was? I'm really trying to remember. Um, she's trying. She's, she's in school, so she works as a bank teller, but she's in school 
trying to learn how to handle investments or something like that. At some point, she tells Lawrence that she's in school at night and talks about what she wants to be able to do to actually be able to move up in the banking and financial industry. But I can't remember off the top of my head what she said exactly. Because one of the things that I can't remember the specifics, but I feel like whatever she was talking about, it wasn't really um, very realistic or I feel like it was very simplistic. Like it was aspirational, but I feel like it was like, uh, like, do you know how you see a lot of uh, Hotep finance advice on Twitter and it'll be like, hey, buy one share of uh, Microsoft and hold on to it. And, it, you know, it's yeah. kind of stuff when you're listening because that's not real. That's not real investing. But they, uh, I, I can't remember what she said, but I felt like it was they kind of wanted to show that she was smart, but that she was still a little too unsophisticated to really uh, like, like you could tell she was never going to be ever doing any serious investing. You know what I mean? Yeah, I, I vaguely remember that point, but I can see where you're going with it. Like, she didn't say anything that's really earth-shattering to see that she really gets the key to the financial future. It was really kind of basic, what she was saying. Yeah, so it was kind of like a lowered expectations. Like, hey, you know, she's kind of ratchet and whatever, but, you know, she's she's doing the best she can. But, you know, it's a little sad because she, what she's doing is so basic, and she thinks it's... I might be reading too much into it, because, and plus it's been a while since I've seen it, but there's... There is something about even the good aspects that it gives her that seems to be a kind of benign racism to it, you know? Oh, yeah. I'd have to go back and re-see the scene to see exactly what the point was she made. Um, I don't remember it being anything that was awe-inspiring or over-the-top. It was just pretty much, I think the intention was purely to say, yeah, she's a bank teller now, but she's working on moving into this realm where you see more but we don't see as many round-the-way black girls. Yeah. She's going to look to try and break that glass ceiling. It, that's what's on her agenda is what they're trying to say. That's what I mean about how they kind of it, drop nuggets of things that they never fully explore. Yeah. Like there was the new hire in Molly's office. They never really, we don't know what happened with her. We don't know if she fought back against the system and was like, no, I do a damn good job and I've never had to change the way that I speak or interact with people in any other office. I'm not going to change it here. We don't know if she went back to Molly and tried to align with her. Maybe they'll go back to that in the second season, but I'm just not getting a sense of them actually doing anything with these semi-interesting points that they'll infuse. There's a trend that I notice in modern TV. And, you know, one of the things I was saying before, I was saying how I feel like the old black shows just wanted to be themselves, whereas these new black shows seem to want to be the black version of a white show or the, you know, the multi whatever. I, I notice a lot of yeah. new shows just kind of take accuracy as enough. Like if this is just a recognizable situation, that's that's enough. Like, you know, like, like that show that, that Lena Dunham has, like Girls, I watched a couple episodes of it, and the show really depicts a certain type of clueless white girl living in Brooklyn very well. But it doesn't have anything interesting to say about it, you know? But, but people are just so happy. There's, like, I feel like viewers are so much more narcissistic now. They're just so happy to see themselves reflected back at themselves. That's all the criteria. And I feel like representation matters. Twitter is like that too. Like if I look at something and it looks like me and my bushy black friends, 
that's it. So as long as it's, it's from something and it's about something, it doesn't matter if it has anything actual, insightful to say about that something. Or even if it tells a good story, right? And that's yeah. kind of where I ended with my, my thread on Twitter where I was talking about people who were saying that the, the Insecure was snubbed by the Emmys. They're being delusional. Just be, the, So at the end of it, I was like, but hey, I'm saying all of this. Because the thing is, for something to be honored in the award show, in theory, it should be representing the best. Yes. Not just something you enjoy because it speaks to you or that it relates. It's not about things that are relatable. There is no category for most relatable TV show. It has to be able to win on some metric like best acting, best comedic performance, best score, best cinematography. It's supposed to be something about it technically or in its quality that sets it apart. And with Insecure, it doesn't have that. But then I I mentioned, but hey, with me saying all of this, I still felt compelled to sit and watch it. Why? And the only reason I can say is because it's somewhat relatable. Yeah. Me as a uh, black professional woman, there were certain elements of it. I'm like, oh, yeah, I can definitely relate to that. I felt the same but way. But does that make it good? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And that's something that, you know, we keep saying is the show is not bad. You know, it's definitely not bad. It's watchable. I don't get bored. There's a, there's a certain level of craft to it that's, you know, undeniable. It's... um. It's a watchable, good show. It's just not, like you said, earth-shattering. And I would almost respect those people campaigning for it to get an Emmy more if they even admitted that. Like, like if they said, hey, yeah, this show is, you know, very average, kind of mediocre, but a lot of white mediocre things win. So right. it should win on that grounds. If they even said that, I'd be okay with it. You know, they said, hey, there's a lot of shows this average that are white. And they only win because white people find them relatable. So Exactly. And instead of doing that, they would try to dismiss when I would try and compare it to another Emmy worthy or Emmy nominated show. They're like, well, it's not supposed to be as good as that because it's just a comedy and this is supposed to be a drama. That's so st- it's not supposed to have cinematography and settings that are as good as Game of Thrones. It's a big epic fantasy. It's not supposed to have acting that's as good as House of Cards. So then what do you want it awarded for? Like, you're kind of admitting, you're, you're basically saying we want a consolation prize. We want a participation trophy. Oh, that's a beautiful way to put it. You're right. You're right. That That is that is basically what it is, you know? And I just really think they're just so starved for, like, white recognition. It's just out of control. Like, it's, it's um, that's when it really, I think, uh, comes down to, like, from Oscars so white to this. They just want so badly. And that's another difference, I think, with how we were with our 90s shows. Like, I never really thought about if Martin was going to win an Emmy or if Girlfriends was going to win an Emmy. That never crossed my mind. I can tell you. (laughs) I don't know if Living Single, Martin, Girlfriends, I don't know if any of them won an Emmy or a Golden Globe. Because we didn't care. I just know that it was good. It was funny. It was was something I I loved. If me and my friends enjoy it. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Like it never right. even crossed our minds. That's why I'm, it's so amazing to me how from day one, but like before these shows even launch, the first thing like these uh, bougie blue check black Twitter people do is concern themselves with whether it's going to win a white award or not and before the show even airs. 
Yes, and a white award yes. in particular. That's the key. Yeah. Like, like if it were like a Soul Train or Image Award or something, they would, or a NAACP Image Award, they wouldn't care, or a BT Award. No, it needs to be honored at the Emmys. It needs to be at the white standard for television. Yes, and that's, and that's, and that's a criteria of if it's worthy. And they, and they, from the beginning, and I think that's part of the reason why these shows uh, have that different tone because they're, you can feel like they're being written to get those awards. Like they're like, okay, what do we have to be to be taken uh, seriously for an award? So, so they're more concerned with that audience than I think um, black people as a whole and um, dope. Right. You know, we're talking about how there's this weird, like low empathy friendship that um, those characters have in insecure. I, I noticed in mm-hmm. Dope, there was a kind of weird thing too. Like those friendships are like kind of weird. Like 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 there's a scene where like the friend is getting fucked up and his his people aren't jumping in. Which is like you know, mm-hmm. or like that one kid gets shot, you know, with the you know, and the Game Boy and stuff. You know that kid's playing the Game Boy and then he gets shot in the hood, that that black kid. And all they care about is going over to his mom's house. And getting the kids comics. Which I thought was like borderline like sociopathic. I'm like, what? Like, like it's like, what's wrong with these people? Like the mother's in mourning and this kid is just coming over there and just trying to get the kids comic collection. I just find like it's really weird that that's the kind of thing. I don't, that's the kind of humor. I don't think you would have found in those old shows. It's. Right, but then I do think with dope with the main character and his two buddies who get kind of embroiled in this unintentional drug deal they did kind of stick with them there was a point where they were kind of like hey like hey did the drug dealer threaten to kill us or did they threaten to kill you but then the female yeah. friends kind of like well no you know we're in this with him because we all wanted to go to the dope dealer's birthday party we need to stick with them through it so they kind of tried to go back they to kind authenticity of, yeah. they kind of did but the fact that they had to even reason that out was weird Right. Like, I don't know if you've seen Stranger Things on Netflix, but the, the bond between those little kids, it was never questioned. It was never really exactly. a situation of, well, do we really want to help find missing Will or is this really just Will's problem? You know, they never really did that. It was just understood that's that we're a, a team, we're a clique, we're standing together. That's a beautiful comparison. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah I feel totally. like they tried to do that, that, that kid camaraderie thing it just didn't do it as well as Stranger Things pulled it off. And and one of the reasons I think I'm like unfair to dope, I might be a little unfair to dope, is that it turned me off really early because they had that sequence where they talk about, and this is where I think um, the Nigerian-American thing comes into play because it says, hey, we get in, and I think a lot of, these um, bougie black people do this too in the in the in the media, um, where they call white shit. He says we get judged for doing white shit, but when he describes white shit, it's riding skateboards, reading manga comics, mm-hmm. listening to Donald Glover and bands like Trash Talk, and TV on the radio. And then this is the part that really got on my nerves. They said getting good grades and applying to college. Right. Like, come on. Like, how? Yeah. Maybe back That's in the 80s for, you could have pulled that yeah. off. But come on. 2016 or, or whatever, 15, whenever Dope came out. That's not still a valid talking point. 
It just is. And that's how foreign black people tend to look at American black people. Like, you know, I, I hear a lot of Haitian parents like say that, like, oh, you don't want to be like black Americans. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I'm, I'm like, when I heard them say that, that's when I looked up the guy's name and history. Because I said, that's a major tell right there. Mm-hmm. And I looked and that's when I found out he was Nigerian American. And I'm like, okay, that line makes sense now. Uh-huh. And then later on, the main character turned out to be Nigerian. And I'm like, okay, this is making a certain... And that's why I think that, that, that nigger conversation they have. Because I have a conversation about the N-word. Oh, God. That was hard. That's not really his word. That's not really his history. His parents and their ancestors, they didn't grow up with that N-word. Right. And they probably it's, dealt with their own version of maybe in Nigeria, not so much, but if he was South African or something, they dealt with their own version of oppression and anti-blackness. But nigger is not something that's been used to hurt you or your people for generations. It's not really exactly. your place to explore that or help us resolve that issue. That that's that's a lane he doesn't even need to go down. No, no, exactly. Like I'm of uh, Haitian descent, even though I'm born in America, I'm raised as an American. You know, if you put me in Haiti, I wouldn't even know how to get around. I've only been there once. But I still understand that I come from a different history. So it's like I wouldn't presume myself to veto a black American person on the nigger conversation, which I thought was very weird. He's telling that girl, I don't know what her character's history is in the movie, but he's telling her, hey, it's cool. He can say, like... You can't tell, you can't veto her. Yeah, and I was still trying to figure out, was he saying that for real, or was he just saying that to set the guy up to where he'd say it again and get smacked? I yeah. couldn't really figure that out, but I do, I, the thing that really I want to scream, I actually think I did say it out loud when I was watching that scene, was like, ask him why he wants to say it so badly. Exactly, why like, is it so important to him? Hey, why is this particular part of our culture the thing that you want to sit here and go back and forth over? Yes, yes. Like, why does it mean so much to you to say this word? And they don't really ask um, those questions. They don't ask those questions. They never gave a valid reason for their opposition, only like, no, you say it, we're going to smack you. Which, to some extent, I get. I think we as black people don't have to over-explain things that should be just understood. So I kind of got that. But they never really took the white character to task for what the hell his hang-up really was. And I'll tell you something else weird about that thing. Like, this is what I mean by a certain disconnect from the culture. Like, why I feel like the guy who did it, to a degree, might not really be um, very immersed enough in black culture. Because the kids are supposed to be some kind of 80s hip-hop heads, right? hmm And on a side note, why is the band a punk band? If they were 80s, why aren't you doing 80s hip-hop? Like, you know... They well, complain. 90s hip-hop, I think, was their thing. But you're right. But why? where does punk come in with ni- early 90s hip-hop? Those two things yeah. are so disparate. Yeah, and I think that this very confused movie, I think cause it was part of things of showing, hey, because there's a certain type of uh, post-racial millennial black kid who thinks that anytime he does something that's non-stereotypically black, He's proving something like, like like he's proving his worth by showing how distance he is from blackness. So I feel like we're supposed to be impressed that they have a punk band because, hey, we're black. But look, we do punk. We're transcending a stereotype. And it's like it doesn't even make sense why you have this punk band if you're so into 
eighties and nineties hip hop, but he didn't even understand it because one of the excuses they give for why the kids should be allowed to um, use the word nigger is because of a Q-tip tribe called Quest song, Suck a Nigger. Oh, you're talking about the uh, non-black free. And I don't, they never really clarified what he was. East, he was East Indian or Arab or I, I think Latino. They he was part, I think they said he was uh, Latino and he said he was like 14% African. Right, right. Uh, yeah, yeah, I think they said he's something like Latino. So I don't know if they were confirmed. But I do remember him saying like, oh, yeah, I'm 14% African. Something silly like that. Yeah. Yeah. But the funny thing is that Q-tip song actually says the opposite of what they said that it said. They, oh, they, they used they, it as an excuse to say all people of color in the same fight when the Q-tip song didn't say that? No, the, the song, because, like, I'm... A, I, in the 90s, all I did, I'm like a 90s hip-hop guy. Like, that's all I listen to. So, like, I know this song. And when he said that, I'm like, there's no way you could be into 90s hip-hop for real and not I think that song is saying that. And this is what the song is actually about. It says, nigga was first used back in the deep south. I'm, I'm paraphrasing. I'm not going to re-rap it, right? And it, mm-hmm. and it came out of the white man's mouth. And it means that we will never grow. And um, other niggas in the community think it's crummy, but I don't, and neither does the youth, because we embrace the adversity that comes with race. So we learn to use it as a term of endearment. Mm-hmm. And, um, and he goes on about now shorties say it all the time. But what he's saying is it's a word that caused a lot of pain. It caused us pain because it came out of the white word's mouth. And it was being used to tell us that we're never going to grow. We embrace the adversity as youth, the embrace that comes along with race, and we turn it into a term of endearment. And now us young black people use it all the time. Nothing in that song says that it's for everybody now. The song says the exact opposite. Right. And also, it make, it shows you how out of touch the um, Nigerian person behind the movie is with the rest of us, because that's a thing that I will say, even Representation Matters Twitter seems to be on the same page with the rest of us, whether you're Hotep, Black Feminist, Representation Matters, or the rest of us who are normal. <laughs> We're all on the same page that, no, you didn't earn a right to or, or earn a black card to call us the n-word i don't care if you're latina i don't care if you're east indian i don't care if you're muslim we don't care you have your own unique history that's fine do that most of us do not co-sign that n-word being thrown around by non-black people period so I don't really know who he put that in there for, except like you said, it's really a medium that's there for voyeurism for non-black people. That was for that audience. That wasn't for black people to really agree with that scene. Yeah, yeah. Like the type of black person that I think that movie was representing was like there's a certain type of um post-racial black guy now. Like, you know, some people call them fuck boys. I call them like uh street style dudes, but the people kind of like the ASAP Rocky people, Tyler, the creator. I think Pharrell is like the grandfather of this type of um, street style dude. And these dudes, like they're just so happy to be around their white skater friends. You know, Uh, I watched the Eric Andre show on one episode. It kind of gave me this vibe too. Like, you know, they're so cool about being, Hey, me and my white skater or white um, friends 
we're so post-racial, we use racial slurs on each other and we um, do non-PC things. Like Time the Creator, the title of the creator is uh, full of that. You had a similar experience oh. with, like, and the thing is a lot of these people's white skater friends, like these are people who like, you know, they watch the show The Boondocks with these like white skater friends and they're all laughing and they don't realize like these white skater kids are laughing a little bit too hard. Mm-hmm. At you know some of the fucked up images in the boondocks, like that type of like uh, kind of post racial millennial fuckboy, and a lot of those kids' friends are really low key racist, and either these kids don't see it or they've learned to make peace with it and excuse it, you know, to uh, fit in. And this movie felt like it was kind of uh, repeating that that vibe. I, Mm. Yeah, kind of. So, really trying to ease in kind of little fuckboys, but pretending like they're like 90s hip hop, really authentically in the culture when they're the exact opposite, really. That's like pretending like the guy on YouTube, the little black emo dude who has a lot of racist friends, that he goes by some black guy. Yes, yes. He's a perfect example. It's like trying to make him authentically black hip hop. Like, wait a minute. Like, hell no. Like, that's not what he is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That guy on YouTube, some black guy, like he's that dynamic on steroids. Like you know, but yeah, he's exactly. He's like the end result of if you keep right. going he's down like the that terminal direction. Stage of the disease. Like I, he's definitely an extreme, but that's yeah. the kind of person headed down that path that they were trying to pass these kids off as. And I'm like, no, that's yeah, you yes. got the wrong ones. Yes, yes. And for people who don't know, if you go on YouTube and look up this guy, some black guy, he's totally that type. He's like, if like uh, a title, the creator type or like an ASAP mob type just threw in the towel totally and just said, hey, I'm cool with white supremacists, open white supremacists. Like, you know, like Aki said, the, the terminal stage and something of this, this, um, that dope had a lot of, I hate this special snowflake thing that a lot of blurs have, you know what I mean? Where it's like, oh, we're these special snowflakes. We're not like their value as black people comes from not being like we said, like the quote unquote typical black person, but, but they kind of reinforce the idea of the typical black person in order to contrast themselves. So in a way they end up perpetuating black stereotypes instead of undoing them they're saying hey these black stereotypes are valid it just doesn't apply to us you know and i call that like please accept me anti-racism like it's about it's very individual it's like hey white people if you want to be anti-racist you should accept me as being having as much white values stereotypical white values as you have Like, like like for example they won't say that being smart or being intelligent or improving is indeed a black value. So you should respect my hard work as being as represent as representative of being a black value as anything else. They're saying, Hey, yeah, black values are fucked up, but not all black people have those values. Some of us have white values. So you should accept yeah, this as honorary white. 
for that like, reason. I am able to assimilate out yeah. of my Negroness and be able to embrace your values enough to where I should be the exception. And you know what I just confirmed, just to make sure I wasn't you know, comparing two people who didn't look alike? We've mentioned ASAP Rocky a couple times, and he actually played right the drug dealer in Dope. That was him. Yes. Oh, that's a great catch. You're right. You're right. You're right. He did play that drug dealer. And, and I find it interesting. All the authentic black people were gangs, gangsters and stereotypes. Like um, even that guy who worked for Harvard secretly turned out to be uh, like, ba- yeah, back when he was black and his kids um, struggles where they, they didn't feel authentically black because they weren't gangsters. Mm-hmm. Like, remember his son? Everything authentically black is presented as negative. Like the son was trying as hard to be like that dope, not that dope boy, but like that blood hard gangster. Even when the blurred kids are laughing in his face, like, dude, you're worse at this than us. And then his sister's just a spaced out on Molly hoish. Like, is that her idea of what black women are? We just are out there just fucking willy nilly and coming to the door naked. Like, yep. Yep. She's, she's like, a hip hop video girl or a Jezebel, like like both of them, in their ideal to rebel and be authentically black, are becoming black stereotypes. Like for example, why can't she say, "Hey, I want to be more authentically black. Let me try to be like um, the black bourgeoisie of the past." Like you know, he could be a Huey P. Long. Sorry, he could be not Huey P. Long, Huey Newton. Like, hey, I want to um, be authentically black and emulate. Huey Newton, or I want to be a Madam C.J. Walker. I want to be a Fannie Lou Hamer. I want, like, you can be authentically black and not be gangster. This movie doesn't seem to accept that anything good could be authentically black. Right. And that was, again, to, to harken back to Girlfriends, that was the thing that I could take from that that made me feel good. Like, I was watching four very different personalities, but they were all black women who represented some authentic blackness that didn't feel like it needed to be gutter. Like, Maya was supposedly the ghetto one. But even then, like, you could see she was really trying to write her books, have a career as an author. She was a great mom and wife. Like, she had good elements to her. Even if she was kind of the neck rolling, popping girl, like that's kind of more the black girls I know. They're not yes. the things that we're getting in dope and insecure. I'm glad you brought that character up because I felt like she was meant to be like a blue collar or a hood black girl, but her aspirations I thought were being presented more positively than that bank teller girl and insecure. Like, you know, like I felt like you were. Half supposed to be a bank t- with the bank teller and insecure's aspirations, and half supposed to be laughing at them. Whereas with, with Maya, I felt like you were kind of like laughing with her out of love. Like, oh man, I have a cousin like that. Right. Or I, I know someone like that. You know, I know people like that, and they're good people. And you know, like her, like her selling the books at the swap meet. You know felt more admirable to me than, you know, how they're representing this girl in Insecure talking about the investments, you know? Right. And even with Lynn, like how she's kind of the emo version of the emo girl in Girlfriends. Like she's the one who does the non-stereotypically black things, like plays in a punk band and 
you know, they, they explored the elements of the fact that, yes, she was biracial. So they went back and explored those family dynamics. They explored the not very traditionally black things that she was into. But you never got a sense from either Lynn herself or other people on the show that she's the exception to us regular black people. She never seemed to be distancing herself yes. from the fact that she was black. Ever. Yeah, she, she wasn't a special snowflake. She never thought that liking punk made her better or more enlightened than any other black person on the and show. You know what else I loved about it is how her other friends, even though you could clearly see that wasn't their vibe, it wasn't their style, it wasn't their music, they still would come out to support her. Like when she had an open yeah. mic night and would be performing, her other friends could come there and jail just like everybody else. Yeah, and, and, and you know something else that was kind of um weird. Well, one thing with the show, right? Like I feel one thing with with um. Insecure, I get the feeling that we're supposed to feel Lawrence is kind of slumming by being with that girl. Uh, right. Yeah. When in reality, they're kind of evenly yoked, aren't they? Yeah. Like, isn't he like in between jobs and not really sure where he's going in life? And yeah. exactly, she has. A, I mean, he might have a degree and the skills, but he's in, he's in the struggle. Like you know what I mean? And she has a steady job. Like, but you get the kind of feeling like he should be with somebody, quote unquote, better, like someone in Issa's circle, even though those girls are so nasty and judgmental and snobby and cliquish. And she's like, just seems like a really decent person. Even the first episode of the second season, you know, you kind of feel like Lawrence just kind of wants to bounce. He just wants to hit it and leave. Like, you know. Yeah, that's all he did. (laughs) There was no real courtship or relationship building up there. They're just fucking now. And that's kind of the the bag that she belongs in. But I don't see what makes Issa a girl who belongs in a different category. Exactly. What makes her so much more an aspirational um, dating choice? Outside of the fact that she's bougie. bougie. That's, that's That's her value, you know? And she's bougie for no reason. I mean, you're a public school teacher in a low income area. Um, the other friend, the heavyset friend, I don't know what she does, but in the season one, oh, me sorry, season two opener, she mentioned something about making sure her white clients get less back on their tax returns as a form of reparations, which, uh, so she's clearly not high power. She might just be doing like accounting. The other one, she's the, so the most high powered one out of all of them is Molly, but the other ones in her group just seem like just regular black women who have a real job and responsibilities. I don't see how they're so much different than the bank teller girl, but I think that's why they have her play up that, that ratchet blackness so much. But I think it's also part of what we were saying about how the show is accurate, but it has no insights. Like it's accurate in that a lot of black people, especially when once they get a college degree, they do throw a lot of that, those extras on themselves, especially if they're working in a majority white workplace and they're like one of the few mm-hmm. black people. They feel very honored to be able to work around white people all day, you know. And right. so, I think it's accurate in that re- in that level. That snobbery is there, but there's no insight as far as like what we said about. There's no self awareness about that. There's something delusional about it that it's it's unwarranted. Right, you're all in the exact same struggle. Like it's, you really aren't in this place to elevate yourself, but they're not going to explore that part. Yeah, so that's what I mean where I feel like this show is from a dynamic. It's about that dynamic, but it has no self-awareness or insight into that dynamic. And maybe that's why a lot of these people love this show because they I don't think they would really like this show if it had a lot of uh harsh truth telling. 
Right. But then speaking of uh, kind of transitioning, I know we haven't touched on it yet, but we kind of started this conversation kind of framing it with black media or whether it's films or TV shows that are kind of overhyped when they're really basic. And the only reason they're overhyped is because people can see themselves in it. So then we transitioned to Moonlight, for instance, something that did get all the accolades that representation Twitter thinks it deserves but that you and I, I think, are on the same page in agreement that it was really kind of a backhanded compliment. Oh, for sure. Because the film itself, it brought up an interesting premise. Like, what is it like exploring your sexuality for a young black boy in a harsh environment? But it never really fully actualized anything. It wasn't entertaining. It didn't really offer any real insights. It still involved those annoying caricatures, like his horrific crackhead mom, it just didn't really do anything. But, you know, if people, because the big part of representation matters, Twitter is the people who believe that LGBTQ or and black, blackness really needs more of a space. Okay, I can agree with that. Can we give it a space and give it an interesting story? Can we give it a space and actually give it a good movie to go along with it? Or is it just the flat fact that he lives in this harsh environment, he turns out to be gay? That's the award-winning part of it? Yeah, and it's, it's it's very weird. And again, I think it's one of those things where it just buys into a lot of the stereotypes that it claims, you know, like, for example, like I said this in a previous episode about Moonlight. I, I mentioned Moonlight at the end of my last episode, and I just said it as an aside, and somebody got pretty upset with me. They didn't get that upset, but um, they had... Uh, wrote something to me and what they said was let me see if I could could find it it goes I still don't understand your issues with Moonlight to me it was just a story of a kid who got bullied while living in a rough culture and getting a helping hand from somebody who cared about him why do you see more than that and I found it weird because I thought I was pretty clear as to my problems with it but there's this weird thing like people just feel like he's just shitting on everybody's happiness if you don't like um these representation movies like you know everyone just like oh why are you just you know people are just doing this and that but i'm telling you white people don't really make these movies about themselves like there's there's not really many white movies that are just wall to wall white suffering from beginning to end right and i feel like for a lot of white people our talent is having an inhuman capacity for suffering so they look to us to teach them how to suffer with grace. And how to suffer with dignity suffer with, and still come out of it at the end with some hopeful ideal, even if there's absolutely nothing there to be hopeful about. Yes, yes, exactly. And I always feel like I think a lot of white people, they're getting less and less power all the time. They're feeling, they're feeling more and more. I feel like a lot of white people are, they feel like they're becoming niggers. Like they feel like we're beca- we're becoming more and more beholden to power. We're becoming less and less important. We're becoming more menial. Being white means less and less. A stage is going to happen where we're all going to be. I think we're seeing this with Trump. Like you know, people are like, "Holy shit, we're going to be niggers too." And they, and they look and they start looking uh-huh. to us to teach them how to navigate this type of suffering that the fear is coming to them, you know? And, and I feel like that's what these movies are for these people. Like, like, like 
they want to see 12 years a slave, you know, and just look at it and see, wow, what is it like, you know, these people are experts in just absorbing in the human amount of suffering. <laughs> the suffering Yeah, experts. we're just suffering. We're just suffering experts. Yeah, I, That's what we bring to the table. I feel like the, the best parallel to Moonlight to me is Precious, because before Moonlight, Precious was that yes. movie for me. That was just from beginning to end hell for this young girl. But even I, I even found, though, that it beats out Moonlight for me because it had genuine moments of light. So, yes, overall, it's a very dark story. But there were some genuine moments in there that pulled you out of that for a moment, for you to see the whole world is not doom, gloom, and misery. Whether it was her interactions, mainly from her interactions with her teacher and her other classmates, some of that was just legitimately funny and endearing and beautiful. Her um, a relationship with the nurse, the Lenny Kravitz character, when she gave birth to her new baby. There were elements of Precious that gave you some breathing room. With Moonlight, there was really no, no breathing room. Like, yes, they had the dope dealer character and his girlfriend who were nice to the young man, but their screen time was extremely limited. The drug dealer character was just, you know, he killed, was killed off in the most invalidating way. He just yeah. killed off screen and we just learned he's gone. No one had, no one had any, like, no okay, one had any motivations. Misery. Nobody was three-dimensional. Like, everybody was just a trope. Everybody was just an archetype. Nobody had, like, the drug dealer with a heart of gold. We've seen him in a million other movies. Let's just throw him in here. Why does he have a heart of gold? He could, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, okay. it's, it's, actually, you know what I'm going to do? I'm, I'll read to you the answer that, that I gave this guy, right? I told the guy, to, to me, the movie just traffics in stereotypes and misery porn so that white liberals can look and think, thank goodness that's not me, while patting themselves on the back for raising their own quote-unquote awareness about something before returning to their everyday lives of doing nothing to change the systematic oppression that leads to the conditions they just raised their awareness about. It's a vicarious thrill gained via gawking at misery porn. It has nothing insightful to say about what is what is discovering? What do you learn about being black and gay outside of it being a terroristic ex- experience due to the fact straight black men are predatory pack animals? It traffics in negative stereotypes to the point where it even has the knockout game in it. It's the it's a cinematic equivalent of a favela, of a favela tour where tourists go to like the slums of Brazil to just see suffering on a, on a tour of the favelas, you know, before going home. Yeah, and that was like the the answer I I mm-hmm. gave him. And and another thing is too is like these bougie black people claim to hate white savior movies, but movies like um Moonlight, they're just a white savior movie minus the white savior because they're full of black non-saviors. Like Moonlight is the blind side if Sandra Bullock's family never intervened. Oh, right. So it's like, this is what happens when we don't come in to pick y'all up. Yeah, it's the same belief system as a white savior movie. And they're just so happy there's not a white savior. They don't realize that the white savior is implied in the sheer misery and inability to save themselves inherent in all the black characters. Mm. I see that. I feel like, yeah. And, and that's what makes white liberals so slick. They know how to adapt the racism to keep the same dynamic there and and just pull a okey doke. And these bougie black people just eat it all up. 
and suddenly they've been tricked into supporting a a covert uh, crypto white savior movie. And then, you know, biting other people's heads off if we don't heap praise onto it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I feel like people like you and I, who the movie sits weird with, even... Because it took me a while to realize that what's bothering me was that this was just a white savior movie in disguise. But something about it, like, I felt it. And I'm sure you felt it, too. Like, there was something about it just didn't sit right, you know? Yeah. And, and, and the thing is, also being able to acknowledge that, hey, something that this doesn't resonate with me, or just saying, hey, this isn't award-worthy to me, that is not the same as invalidating every single person who was involved in it. And I, and I get really annoyed with that angle of attack from the people who pretend to love these things. I'll be honest, I just don't believe there's really a person alive who truly loved Moonlight. I, I just don't believe it. Nor do I really believe there's a person alive who's just really getting lost and insecure every week. I, or anyone who truly just felt, felt themselves just swept up in the story of dope. I, I personally don't believe it, but different strokes for different folks. But the idea that if you yeah, say that something didn't either. resonate I just with think, you, you get you know, attacked for it on a personal level instead of them actually dealing with what you're saying. Yeah, I feel like I feel like they're just happy with the um, with their recognition. You know, they're just, they're just happy with their recognition, and that's it. It doesn't have to resonate. You know, just just recognizing themselves is enough. Um, a couple more things before before we wrap up. I want to. Um, First thing else I want to bring up in dope. Did you see something weird about? I thought something weird about. Remember that that rich black girl who was kind of acting like a Jezebel and a hip hop video chick kind of. Mm-hmm. We think she's a stereotype. Mm-hmm. I find it kind of weird how the privileged white kids in that movie, and and the blurred who are, you know is kind of like an honorary um, person. Of, of white privilege in a way the way he's presented the Nigerian kid she's almost passed around like you know something for gutter sex like she's weirdly I find something weirdly racist about that about how like you know that white kid you know uses her you know to have sex with and the other white guy at the party's like hey are you, are you done with her yet and when the Nigerian guys that are at her house there was something really icky about that like I thought that was a really disrespectful treatment of of, of black women like She's just being passed around like sex enjoyment. Like, you know, it made me think of like the slave movies where, you know, the slave master has his favorite bed wench that he uses. And when his guests come over, remember in, uh, remember in, um, what's it called? In Birth of a Nation, like, you know, the guy's guests come over. So he's like, here, try my favorite wench, you know? Yeah, and we're talking about the uh, girl from Dope, right? The one who is uh, the daughter of the main Dope guy? Yeah. And how, yeah, you know what? Not only so there's a lot of gutter stuff that happened with her. So not only with the main character and she tried to get high and just fuck him out of nowhere, but that scene we're talking about with the white guy who was like the black web drug dealer who helped them kind of get rid of the stash. Yeah. And remember how he had some scene with him earlier where he kind of intimated that he had questions about whether or not he was gay. He said yeah. something about how he'd never had sex, but he'd had anal sex. There's something weird like that. And then he was talking about how he had sex with a black girl because he just wanted to know what having sex with a black girl was like. So not only is she just there to be used by a white man to scratch kind of a fetish, but it's a white guy who, number one, is a druggie, an overall kind of failure in life, possibly gay. Like, that's the the dude that she 
got turned out with. I'm like, dude, that's so insulting. Yes, and that's the guy who is you know passing her around like she's you know beneath him he's 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 giving the other guy like she has almost no agency like you know it's not about hey i'll introduce you to her and she might sleep with you it's like hey you know i'm done with this black girl you know if you want to try her go like like the option of her saying no or seeing that guy is that other guy is being beneath sleeping with doesn't even come into question she's just there to be a hundred percent um, sexually available, like it's just assumed, mm-hmm. and it's presented comedically. And I'm like, that's a weird thing to have in a movie that's supposed to be um, that black people are supposed to enjoy. Um, mm-hmm. here, here's one last point I wanted to make, and then I'm going to let you make any final points that you have. You can uh, have the last word in, in this episode. Um, okay. That question that I was given before about why. Are you such a hater on Moonlight? It's just, you know, people having fun, whatever. Um, a white guy wrote something. He, he, he seems white in his Twitter picture. He responded something that I kind of agree with, but I think he's a little bit off. And I'll read to you what he said. He said, I don't blame Moonlight, but white gatekeepers have a tendency to make suffering the exclusive domain of black art marginalizing black artists who don't center suffering in their work and making and implicitly making as high-minded and implicitly making high-minded metaphysical topics a white art thing so you know he's saying that you know black people have to make suffering uh, a major part of the work to be centered and high-minded metaphysical stuff is implicitly considered to be the domain of white art and then he adds this is a huge problem in the art world right now. White people are seemingly only interested in black art that concerns suffering. And mm-hmm. the part where I disagree with him, I think he's 100% right. And then get out when that um, white guy, the blind white guy is sitting with Chris at the auction mm-hmm. and talking about how these people don't know anything about suffering, but you do. And he metaphorically wants Chris's eyes because he thinks, oh, Chris's eyes, I can see suffering better with Chris's eyes mm-hmm. and I can make better art about suffering. Like, you know, that thing was kind of a commentary on it. The one part where I disagree with this guy's comment, he says, I don't blame Moonlight. And that's where I disagree because I think these people, they're very white identified. They grow up surrounded by white people. They learn how to navigate white people. They grew up being the tokens a lot in many situations. They know what the dynamic is. They know white people want this out of them. I don't think they're innocent. Because when black people, I notice, make movies for black people, it doesn't sound like that. I don't know many... I mean, even Tyler Perry's things, even when they get into like degradation and suffering... There's always a salvation, whether it's through God, whether it's through something. There's a lesson learned. There's black people who, to a degree, save themselves. Like this black non-savior. Just, oh, and, and, and Tyler Perry's thing. They also have black lawyers, black doctors. It's a full range of experience. There's black um, grandmothers and church people. It's, it's, it's a wide range of experience. These people know what they're doing. They know that white people want this from them. And they're giving them what they want to see in order to win awards. And I want to ask you if you think I'm being too harsh on 
the black people who make these things to be award bait? Um, to an extent, maybe. Because I do think that it, it all rests with their intent. Because if the person behind Moonlight, as he says, he wanted to present an element of his discovery as a young black male who is gay in a very rough environment, there is probably a young black child in that scenario that could garner something from having that medium created. I don't want to say that he's doing it purely for white validation, but there is enough evidence there for that to be a worthy question. Because like you noted, you know, a lot of times the things that will be awarded and heralded are the things that just have suffering with no real end and no real light at the end of the tunnel. Like those are the things that for whatever reason, not, well, not for whatever reason, I think the guy who responded to you on Twitter wrapped up the reason. Those are the things that white people will value in our work. So that's why 12 Years a Slave and The Help and Moonlight and all those things are the things that end up being showered with praise. So I'm kind of on the fence with that. I can, I can try to hold out a little bit of space somewhere within me to give them the benefit of the doubt they're creating art they do find meaningful. Like the author behind the uh, book of Precious, I think that woman legitimately was trying to get a story out there that she felt needed to be told. The um, original play of uh, For Color Girls, the film that then Tyler Perry took and adapted to film, I think that really was trying to get something out. And so I don't think that we should censor our art so that it won't be exploited by whites, but I definitely think that we don't have to ignore if something exists purely for that reason. I'm not sure if I'm even making sense. Like, I think it's okay yeah, for us no, to no, know no. that Moonlight has been showered with praise purely for that reason, not because it was actually a good film. It's okay for us to know that. I'm yeah. not going to necessarily demonize the person who made it. Yeah, what, what I'm saying is I don't think that these people are unaware of the white sensibility, like what white people are getting out of the art, which is what I think this guy was saying. Like, I'm not saying that they shouldn't cover these topics or whatever, but I just don't think that they're unaware of it. I think they know that this is what white people want to see. And that, um, if I'm going to, do something to be taken seriously by white people, it has to have, like, I think it's a compromise that people understand that they're um, making um, to, a, to a degree. Because I'll give a, I'll give a real, I'll give a real life example that creeped me out a couple weeks ago. I was invited to this um, comedy show by some white guys that live in my building and is down the street. And I went there, and uh, it was in Bed-Stuy, but it's in, like, um, it's kind of like a comedy show of nothing but, you know, white people in the audience and, and like, performing. There was a couple of, uh, it was, like, a Latino or somebody who was performing. But it was, it was a very uh, gentrified environment. But it was, it was a good comedy show. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I went outside with um, some of the white people that I came with. And we were talking, and then as the white as the white people from the show like came outside, and I was among them. I think I was probably the only black guy in that crowd. Um, 
different black people from the neighborhood started converging to beg. And what was interesting was, I guess because I was so surrounded by these white people, I kind of became invisible or honorary white, or maybe they thought I was just, you know, like a super whitewashed guy. Somehow I felt like I wasn't reading as black to them anymore. So then they were starting, oh, okay. to, they were starting to beg. And when the guy was begging to me, one of the guys I recognized as having beg, begged to me in the past, but when he used to see me before, when he, when he would come at me, he's like, hey, yo, homie, I just got out of uh, prison. You know, I need this and that. Like, he was kind of coming at me from empathize with me. Like, hey, 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 hey baby, bro. Like, yo, yo, uh, let me holler at you for a second. He's telling me, like, you know, his story and stuff. The way he was begging now really creeped me out because he was like a, shuffling like a step and fetch it. And like doing this weird soft shoe. And I'm like, like, I felt like really embarrassed for him. And I just felt really weird. Like, I'm like, dude, why are you begging like this? Like, I just, it was like breaking my heart. I just kind of wanted to just like, like, dude, just please just don't do this. You just, you don't, you know. And I felt the white people around me were kind of uncomfortable that I was there to witness it. You know, kind of seeing like, yeah, this is really what it's like. You know, and so then I was, I was looking at that dude. I'm like, wow, this dude, he knows, or he he thinks he knows what white people, like, I never really realized that maybe that's really what it's like to see, you know, when black people come to beg at you as a white person, because I've always been uh, kind of begged to in a different way. And to a certain degree, I think uh, a lot of these bougie black people kind of internalize a high-minded version of that like like that thing kind of sat with me for for a couple of weeks you know mm-hmm. like seeing it play out in that dynamic in a place where you probably weren't supposed to be privy to it that is deep yeah 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 and i mean he was so obsequious and way different i don't think he recognized you from before I somehow uh, being in this group almost made me invisible or less recognizable, you know, because I've, I've seen this guy a lot in the past. He's always been in this neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Like his, his kind of code switching was very weird, but yeah, he was very hat in hand. I mean, and his voice, he was just sounding like a straight slave. Like that wasn't how I, I ever heard him talk before. So you saw him just kind of go into that character. Yeah, wow. yeah, and I guess he figured this is how I'm going to get, get my bread from these people. That's sad. It was really, it was really sad. And then, and that's kind of my main takeaway from all the things we're discussing is that it's 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 just sad if you feel like you have to. Mm, I'm trying to overstate it, but feeling like you have to play up, like you said, the caricature with your hat in hand, and be overly. I say that's overly pathetic yes. for either white people's comfort or approval. That is annoying. Yes, yes. There was like a real life uh, version of that. Look at how much I'm suffering. Like you know. And I do think you made a point earlier because you mentioned Tyler Perry and how he'll have a story arc that contains a lot of suffering, but in the end, whether it's through spirituality or the community banding together or through their own characters' resources they pull through, they save themselves, they move forward. And I do think that that's the thing ultimately that has gotten his work panned and ridiculed and dismissed by white audiences. 
is that they don't see the pathetic black people that they want to see. Yes. Like particularly his films, um, the Why Did I Get Married series, because those don't have the Medea character, which I, I understand where people are coming from. They say that has an element of a um, mammy part yeah. to it. But Medea's not in the Why Did I Get Married series. It's just black people, most of them successful, good looking, having real life experiences in their relationships and that I think is just unsavory and it's just not there for white consumption just like those old 90s shows we talked about they weren't there to make white people comfortable for their consumption and those, it was yeah. really for us and those movies I think low-key piss off a lot of white people because they otherize white people the same way might white movies and shows tend to otherize um, non-white people like whenever white people appear in why did I get married in those movies? They're basically playing the role that, you know, minorities do when they pop up on Seinfeld. They're just there to be a stereotype, to be laughed at, you know, to be like the staff somewhere. And, you know, they, they just come to do something that's like hilariously white and then walk off. And then the black characters will comment on it. And I just don't think white people like when people otherize them the way they habitually otherize um, other races. Mm. Yeah, so they don't it, like turnabout is not really fair play in their eyes. Like yes. the idea that they can be marginalized and just this background character that can be there in a very surface. You know who else did, did that a lot on Martin? Remember the white guy who worked at oh, Martin's that's radio a station? Great one. You're right. You're right. You're you're. That's all he existed to be it was like the dopey, corny white guy on the side, and they do not like. Oh that. yeah, yeah, for sure. There's another show that um. Does that a lot. It's a series called um, Master of None. The second season does that a lot. I, I, I recommend it. It's not It's not perfect. It has its problems, you know. Um, one of the problems I have with it is, like, the main character is Indian. And he seems to only really date uh, white women. And, like, Indian women kind of... Um, I don't really like how he represents them. But um, he does do this thing where he'll just having a whole episode about African cab drivers or Hispanic doormen. And the whole episode will be from their view. Uh-huh. And for example, um, you ever see a show called Two Broke Girls? Uh-uh, I'm not saying that. Oh, yeah, it's not a good, it's not a good show. But the show is the, is the epitome of what I'm talking about, where these is two um, white girls who want a cupcake shop, like the total basic, the total basics, mm-hmm. right? Um, pumpkin spice latte types. And every minority, like they're shown as default and normative, and every minority is just a collection of stereotypes. And on that show, like say, um, if there was a black cab driver, he would be extra African probably. And, you know, he might have, they'll stop short of putting a bone through his nose. But he, I mean, he'll basically be just... Everything that shows up, if it's a gay person, that person is just swishing and it, like everything is just, you know, there for these two white girls to kind of do commentary and laugh at. And in Master of None, he has an episode with from the position of a African cab driver and it's a whole life. Like he has total interiority. He's three dimensional. He's in a room with like four other of his roommates and they all drive cabs and do different things. It shows them when they go out at night. And the social life, this whole episode. And there's a scene where these two white girls get into a cab. Mm-hmm. And I feel like there's probably a commentary on this show. 
they're so annoying and full of annoying self-centered white girl stereotypes and he's rolling his eyes and making jokes about about them oh. um, throughout the cab ride and it was an interesting reversal and I, and I noticed a lot of white people didn't like that that show especially that second season there were a lot of people that were like eh. yeah they do once the again once it hit them it's not okay anymore so basically nobody really wants to be treated the way that they've treated mocked and diminished everyone else and so t- to that extent I think really the takeaway from this conversation is that you and I are different and that we don't come from a realm of constantly wanting to impress whites like we come from a realm of yeah. just wanting to have authentically solid material. And whether white people get with it or not, that's on them. But we still should be able to authentically tell good stories and relate to each other without trying to meet their metrics. Yeah. Yes. And, and I also think that there, you talk about people like me and you, I think there's levels of assimilation and people don't really talk about it on a spectrum, but I think there's a difference between being like white socialized and being like white identified. Uh-huh. And I think like you can be white socialized. Like for example, I understand how to go to school with white people or work in a white workplace or white, a majority white workplace, but still have an authentically black experience or, you know, authentic black social circles or, you know, not actually like feel like identified or internalized. Like, for example, you and I can go to a workplace or a school setting or whatever, be surrounded by white people and know how to carry ourselves Mm -hmm. in that environment or go out one night socially with a bunch of white people. But it won't be like our actual private majority existence is why, like a lot of these people, they're actual tokens in their lives. Like a majority of their friends are white. A majority of their exes or dating partners are white. Like they actually are that assimilated. Like it's not something that they can turn on and off or the, a circle that they go in and out of. That's that's their world. That's how they grew up. Mm-hmm. And I believe that's where a lot of these representation matters people kind of come from. Like they're they're tokens in every aspect of their existence, not just um, able to uh, have to socialize. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So um, I think, you know, we're a little over today, but I'll let you have the last word. Um, I think we've already kind of wrapped things up in a nice bow. I, I think that, though, the reality is that when you kind of speak, and you kind of wander off the plantation, so to speak, and you don't kind of fall in with hive mind or groupthink, then you're going to be challenged. But I do appreciate that you started this space as a place where we can have dialogue and have it be nuanced and thoughtful, and that it doesn't just have to be a repetition of what the loudest voices are saying. And I know we didn't even get a chance to touch on it, um, but that article about the girl who was having kind of the internal crisis because she didn't love Insecure as much as everyone else. I'm sure you can share that on Twitter, but... um, Oh, I totally forgot. I have to put that in the show notes. I'll just say the... It's on Medium. I'll just say the the title. I'm not good at... uh, It's called I've Been Insecure About Not Loving Insecure 
But I realized it's so much more than that. That's the full title. It's a very long title. And it's by an author named Izin Ukoha. And I'll put the link in the show notes. But yeah, do you want to just summarize before we go, like what that article is about? Um, well, it's, it's a little circuitous and sometimes circumstantial. But um, really, if you want to boil it down, it was a young lady kind of exploring and processing around the fact that she has been trying to really fall in love with Insecure as an experience because the people in her life and the people on Twitter and the people you know around her are heralding it as this great, wonderful, game-changing experience. And so she was just really describing that she's been trying to feel that way about it and can't. But what's interesting is that it's causing her so much internal conflict that yes, it sounds almost it. like yeah. It's, it's it's almost like somebody who's in a cult, and is starting to see contradictions in what the cult leader and the cult members are saying. Like it's that type of a cognitive dissonance she's having. It's very weird. Mm. Yeah. 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 I, I, I mean, yeah. Sorry. Go on. Well, that I think is just kind of the the real take home is that there are some people who are trying so hard to get on board because a lot of voices in unison are saying, this is how you're supposed to feel. And I'm very team anti that I'm team honesty. Now, of course I'm all for big upping our work and our artists who are putting out quality stuff, but I also feel like it's okay if you're not on every single bandwagon. Yeah, I guess that's how totally. I sum it up. And yeah. it up. Well, well said. And Last thing I'm going to say is uh, the term intellectual ratchetry, which is going to be the title of this episode, was coined by Aki. So if anybody wants to compliment that term, the credit goes to her. I I love that term. And um, yeah, I think that's a good place to wrap up. Thanks for joining me today, and I hope we can have you on again soon. Okay, no problem. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, yeah, and... uh, No, keep doing what you do and take care. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. All right. Bye.